Father, I pray that you would now work through your word to give us wisdom and to give us rest in Christ. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 31. Uh, I was hoping to do Exodus 25 through 31 in one sermon, and I think this is the third, and so we got slowed down. Uh, The the Lord would not let us move too quickly through the passage. Uh, I have been uh, making the case as we have made our way through Exodus 25 through 31 that these instructions for the tabernacle loosely correspond to the creation account, and that in in the places where The Lord said to Moses, there are seven of these, there is a correspondence to the seven let there be statements that we have in Genesis 1. And in the same way that the last thing that God creates on day six is the man, and then there's rest on day seven, here in Exodus 31, there are these skilled master workers who uh, are are equipped for the work of building the tabernacle and then follow instructions for the Sabbath rest. So there's a correspondence between the creation account in Genesis 1 and the instructions for the tabernacle. And then also, in the same way that the creation account is followed by the account of Adam's sin, this account of the instructions for the tabernacle will be followed by Israel's sin with the golden calf. And so this sets up a a broader kind of correspondence where the nation of Israel is a new Adam in a new Eden as they receive the tabernacle where God will dwell among them. And then there's the experience of a new transgression, a new rebellion that's going to result in a new experience of judgment and also mercy as we'll see as we continue. As we approach Exodus 31 this morning, I want to tell you about a man named Coke Stevenson. This is one of, the, one of my favorite historical characters that I've ever read about. And his story, I came across it in, Lyndon, in, in Robert Caro's four-volume biography of Lyndon B. Johnson. One of the great things about Caro's four-volume biography of Johnson is that he tells you these sort of mini-stories of these other figures. And so Coke Stevenson comes into the narrative because in 1947... He won the election to Senate, to the Senate, the United States Senate, and he ran in that election against Lyndon B. Johnson, but Lyndon B. Johnson became the U.S. Senator because he stole the election. You can look it up. It really happened. Lyndon B. Johnson stole the election from Coke Stevenson in 1947. But Coke Stevenson was a man of virtue and wisdom, and his story is amazing. And in spite of the fact that he had been so wronged, in spite of the fact that he had suffered such a grievous injustice, that man had rest. That man had peace. So his story begins uh, in the early 1900s as a teenager. He was living in, 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 in the boondocks in Texas, out in the middle of nowhere, and he realized that farmers had all these crops that they were growing, but they couldn't sell their crops to anyone because no one uh, could. And so he realized, I have an opportunity to ship the crops of the farmers to the towns where they can be purchased. And so he acquired a wagon and a couple of mules, and he started his own shipping company as a teenager. 
And so he would, he would ship these crops. He, would, he himself would drive the crops with his, his wagon and his mules from where the farmers were to the markets. And, and he would travel through these, these desolate, isolated places in Texas, camping at night. And by the campfires, he would read Shakespeare. He would read the Bible. And he eventually realized he didn't want to do this forever. And so he started reading accounting. And, and he, he decided he wanted to work at a bank, so he read books on accounting, and he figured out how to, how to keep track, how to be a bookkeeper. And then he, he began to work at the bank in the lowest level position, and he just worked himself up until eventually he owned the bank. And then he decided he wanted to study law, and so he read law, and he qualified himself as an attorney. And then his local town needed someone to fix the roads. Well, Coke Stevenson decided he knew how to read, and he studied civil engineering, and he figured out how to make the roads flat so that people could drive on them. And then later in his life, he wanted to build himself this uniquely fashioned barn, and so he studied architecture, and he figured out how to build this barn. The man, his story is incredible. It, it, it's almost beyond imagination how much this guy learned to do. I mean, I've just named, he became essentially an accountant, an attorney, uh, and, and, and an architect, and an engineer. He's an amazing person. And then the election was stolen from him. But as I said, he had peace in spite of that because he lived in wisdom and because he knew where to find rest. And with that, I want to invite you to look with me at Exodus chapter 31. Uh, the Lord has been giving to Moses these instructions for the tabernacle and as we come to the end of the instructions, we read here in Exodus 31, 1 and following, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Now let me just pause and, and remind you of some of the things that, that have been uh, commanded by the Lord. They are to uh, construct the Ark of the Covenant and overlay it with gold. They are to build the high priest's breastplate in which these stones will be inlaid. They are to, of, of one piece of the gold of the Ark of the Covenant, they're to, to construct these cherubim that will overshadow the Ark out of the same gold that overlays the Ark. So there's a lot of intricate and detailed work that is to be done in the construction of everything from the Ark of the Covenant to the mercy seat, the, the, the altars, the lampstand, and on and on we could go throughout the things that we've seen that they're to build. How are they going to do this? Look at verse 3. The Lord says, And I have filled him, this guy Bezalel, with the Spirit of God. So the Lord says, I have equipped this guy. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Now, just a couple of observations here. The Lord has commanded Israel to do these things, and now he is equipping this guy Bezalel, or announcing that he has equipped this guy Bezalel to be able to do these things. And I want to encourage you to be confident that this is the way the Lord always works. If the Lord, if the Lord commands something, he will supply the grace, the wisdom, the intelligence, the, the wherewithal to get the job done. If he's going to command it, 
He will supply what's needed. We can be confident. So your first point of application this morning is to trust the Lord. If you're reading the Bible and you come across a command and you feel like in your soul, I don't know how to keep that command. Trust the Lord and then keep reading the Bible because you will find in the scriptures that the Lord has made provision for you to be able to keep these commands. Uh, Second, I want to observe that in verse 3 we read, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, this guy Bezalel. And you, you can look through the entirety of the Old Testament. Every time something like this is said, the Lord is enabling someone to do what nobody else in Israel can do. That's, a, that's sort of a general principle that you will find to be the case as you work your way through the Old Testament. When the Lord says, or, or when the scriptures say, that someone is, is either, either filled with the Spirit or has the Spirit of God upon them, that's an old covenant person who is able to do what nobody else can do. So it's said of, of Joseph that he was filled with the Spirit of God, and he's able to interpret dreams nobody else can interpret. The same thing is said of Daniel, that the Spirit of God is in him. And again, he's able to interpret dreams and and even tell dreams that haven't been related to him. Uh, He's enabled to do what nobody else can do. The judges, the, the Spirit of God rushes upon the judges and enables them to do what nobody else in Israel can do. And then we're going to see in the New Testament that there are figures who are filled with the Holy Spirit, like Peter in Acts chapter 4. And, 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 and this sort of brings me to my, my broad observation on what's going on here. You, you may have noticed that we read Proverbs 8 earlier in the service, where this personified uh, uh, female character of wisdom speaks of how she was with God at creation. So God created the world by wisdom. And now here at the the building of the tabernacle, the Lord is saying, I have filled Bezalel, and and among other things, he has given him wisdom and intelligence and and knowledge and craftsmanship to be able to do these things. So God created the world with wisdom, and now Bezalel has wisdom to build the tabernacle. And Peter, in Acts 4, is filled with the Holy Spirit, which also happened in Acts 2, And what's happening there is the the church is being brought into being. And earlier in the service, we read 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul speaks of how, like a skilled master workman, he laid the foundation of the church, and he did it with wisdom. So to summarize, God built the world with wisdom. He equipped Bezalel and Aholiab that we're about to read about with wisdom for the building of the tabernacle. He equipped Peter and Paul with wisdom for the building of the church. And this, I would suggest, is where we come in because uh, we have the opportunity to learn wisdom from the scriptures. And I want to encourage you, here's, here's another point of application for you, I want to encourage you to embrace Ephesians 5.1, which says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And and one of the ways that we should imitate God is that we should do our work with wisdom. God built the world with wisdom. He equips Bezalel to build the tabernacle with wisdom. He gives wisdom to Peter and Paul for the building of the church. And James 1 promises, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all. So I'm, I'm looking around at a room that I know is full of ambitious people. 
people ambitious for the gospel, some of you ambitious for other jobs that the Lord has, has called you to engage in. And, and I just want to urge you to ask the Lord for wisdom. Ask the Lord for, for insight, for the ability to see what needs to be done, and for the creativity to see a new way to bless people in doing it. And we should apply this not only to our, our, our labors in our various employments that the Lord has called us to engage in, where I'm, I'm urging you to pursue wisdom there, we should also apply it as members of Kenwood Baptist Church. Let's pursue wisdom for our work in, in the world and for our work on God's kingdom in the church. We all have various things. I, I could name you probably a dozen areas of my life where I need wisdom from God, and, and you can pray for me, I'll pray for you, that we'll all have wisdom in these things. So just to illustrate from my life, I get to coach my kids in, in, as they play baseball and in the winters, basketball, and hope, uh, well, sometimes cross country. I need wisdom for these things. I need wisdom to know how to relate to, to, to kids, to parents, wisdom to know how to, how to effectively equip them to do what they're doing. I, I have the opportunity to engage in writing projects. I need wisdom for those things. Uh, I am obviously at work here at, at Kenwood. I need wisdom for these things. I have the opportunity to teach students at Southern. I need wisdom for these things. I need wisdom to know the best way to, to, to maintain our lawn. And, and on and on we could go with all the various things that we're all engaged in. We need wisdom to know how to deal with our children. Wisdom to know how, how to advise our friends. Wisdom to know how, how to relate to our parents and our extended family members. On and on we could go. In all these areas, we need wisdom. And I want to I urge you to lay hold of, J, of James 1.5 as a promise to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to come to your funeral and have it said of you, this was a man of wisdom. This was a woman of wisdom. The path to that starts with James 1.5, laying hold of that promise and, and seeing God built the world in wisdom. God gave wisdom to Bezalel and Aholiab. God gave wisdom to Peter and Paul. And James says that God will give wisdom to me. Believing these things, embracing these things, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Cry out to the Lord for wisdom. We continue here. Look at, look at verse 6. The Lord continues, Behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And then he goes through all that they're commanded to make, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do." It's almost a summary of everything that we've read from chapters 25 through this point in 31 
the Lord is saying, I have given these guys, Bezalel and Aholiab, all the wisdom and skill and insight and intelligence that they're going to need to be able to devise these things. So God gives commandments. God supplies what's needed to obey those commandments. Uh, let me also observe, I think this is interesting, that Bezalel, in verse 1, is of the tribe of Judah. And I think that's significant because it's going to be a man from the tribe of Judah, Solomon, son of David, who's going to build the temple. And we'll read over in 1 Kings, when you get into the temple narrative, in 1 Kings chapter 7, that the Lord has given this fellow Hiram, king of Tyre, he's made him, 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 14, full of wisdom, understanding, and skill uh, for basically building the temple. And then along will come one who is our wisdom, who is the, the, the builder of the church. The Lord Jesus announces himself. He says, I will build my church as the, as the fulfillment of the temple. And that brings us to this uh, next part of this text, which is going to deal with the Sabbath in uh, Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. And um, as, as we approach this, again, I want, to, I want to make a suggestion about what's happening here, because I think what's going on is in the same way that God built the world like a king building his palace, and then on the seventh day he took up rest in his residence, so also here... They're building the tabernacle, which is the place where the Lord is going to dwell, and then they're going to receive instructions about rest. And, and I want to draw your attention to the way that rest is associated with, with a place. So it's only once the world is built that they rest in God's land of Eden on the seventh day. It's only once the, the tabernacle is built, or, or all the instructions are given here. It's not going to be built until uh, the end of chapter 40. But the instructions for it are given here, and then follow the instructions for the rest. And we're going to see, as we look uh, into the New Testament, that the idea of place is going to be associated with the idea of rest in he Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. So look with me here at Exodus chapter 31, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all... You shall keep my Sabbaths. And, and I think the reason it's plural is because uh, the, the, the term Shabbat has to do with rest. And there are going to be various rests in which they're going to engage. The seventh day of the week, on Saturday, they're going to rest. The seventh year is a sabbatical year. They're going to rest in the, the sabbatical year. The, the, the year of Jubilee, after seven weeks, of seven sets of seven years, and the 49th year, they're going, to, they're going to rest in that year as well. And then there are other, other things that are going to happen, for instance, in the seventh month. Uh, that's the, the month in which you have a number of feasts, including the Day of Atonement. So there are going to, be, going to be all these occasions in Israel's history in which they are going to rest. And I think that by, by referring to the Sabbaths, He's not just referring to every seventh day. He's referring to all these other things, the seventh year, uh, the seventh month, uh, the 49th year, and so on. You shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, if I'm correct about that, this would tie the weekly observance of the Sabbath, Sabbath to all of the calendrical 
instructions, all the things that pertain to the calendar in Israel. Seventh year, as I, all those things I've just enumerated. So I'm, I'm suggesting, I'm moving in the direction of the claim that the old covenant law is a unity and it has to be regarded as a unity. And, and this is really what I've been trying to demonstrate ever since we looked at the Ten Commandments and then we moved into the commandments that follow in the book of the covenant in Exodus 21 through 24 and we saw how those other laws are just expositions of the Ten Commandments. And, and to be clear about what I'm trying to say here, here, the point I'm trying to make is I don't think that Moses intended his audience to conceptualize the laws that he's describing as though there are some that are moral and there are some that are civil and there are some that are ceremonial. I know that's a, a widely used division in our culture and, and in, in Christian theology since the since probably the medieval period, or, or I don't know when, when exactly it arose. I haven't traced that, his, that point in the history of theology. What I'm, what I'm saying is I don't think Moses intended you to do that with the law, to divide it up into moral, civil, and ceremonial. And when we look at the New Testament, I, I want to suggest that's not how the New Testament authors talk about the law of Moses. They don't divide it up into moral, civil, and ceremonial. And that leads me to say this. I would encourage you not to divide it up into moral, civil, and ceremonial. Because as if you read this book, you'll see it's all treated as moral. It's all treated as moral. If you, if you break a so-called civil or ceremonial commandment, often the punishment is the same. It's all regarded as a moral infringement, an immoral infringement upon the holiness of God. It's a, it's a unity. Now we continue here in verse 13. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you. Notice the Lord is saying that the, the Sabbaths are a, 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 a sign and signs communicate between himself and the nation of Israel. That's the me is the Lord, the you is the nation of Israel. And then he goes on, throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, some people have looked at that and they've said, okay, throughout the generations, that means that the Sabbath is to be a sign between God and his people for all generations. And I've tried to highlight, as we've moved through Exodus 25 through 31, the way that that phrase, throughout your generations, is used. And I just want to draw your attention to some instances of it. So look at Exodus 27, 21, where speaking about the oil for the lamp. Uh, it says in verse 21, in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, that's where the, the, the menorah, the lampstand goes, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Okay, so the oil for the lamp is, is there throughout their generations. Look at Exodus 28 verses 42 and 43. This is regarding the priest's clothing. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. Now we might say, oh, those linen undergarments are just ceremonial, 
but it looks like it's going to be immoral if they don't wear them because if they don't wear them, they could be put to death by the Lord, right? So I think it's moral. I don't, Moses is not meaning for you to think of these as merely ceremonial. We continue, this shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So that forever language is used of the, the priest's garments. 29.9, you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Again, forever language regarding the, priest, the priesthood of Aaron. Look at chapter 30, verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, I think that's referring to the day of atonement. And again, you get that throughout your generations language. So here's what, I'm, what I would propose we should take away from this language of throughout your generations and forever. I think it means as long as the old covenant is operative. Now, now why do I say that? Well, because we don't have a lampstand that we're tending, do we? And, and there's no instruction in the New Testament that we ought to build a menorah and put it in a holy place and have priests who tend the lampstand until Christ returns. And we don't, I don't, I mean, I don't have linen undergarments. I'm not a priest, right? And the priests don't wear linen undergarments. There's no ironic priesthood. In fact, the, the author of Hebrews goes so far as to say where there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. So the, the priesthood that was forever throughout the generations for Aaron, it's over. It's over. It's been replaced because there's a new covenant. In the new covenant, Christ is the great high priest, and, and the old covenant is over, even though there were these forever and throughout your generation statements made about it. Day of Atonement. We don't celebrate the Day of Atonement, do we? Uh, no, because it was fulfilled when Christ died on the cross. That's why we don't celebrate the Day of, day of Atonement. The Old Covenant was brought to an end. The New Covenant was inaugurated through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So I would propose that the same applies here with reference to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant as a sign, and the Sabbaths, the, the, the seventh year, the 49th year, all the, all the calendar stuff, it was meant as a sign between the Lord and Israel throughout your generations, meaning as long as the old covenant is in place. This is, this is for us. So verse 14, oh, one more comment there on verse 13, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And, and again, this is language that is used all over the place in, in the Old Covenant with, re, with regard to the Mosaic Covenant. I just want to give you one example from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 8. And, and this is dealing with uh, the, the Old Covenant as a whole. Uh, the Lord says, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And, and, and here's how I think this works. The Lord is going to take up residence there in the tabernacle. And thereby, the nation of Israel that surrounds the tabernacle in the encampment around it is set apart to him and devoted to him. So by his presence among them, he demands that they be devoted to him. By his presence among them, he sanctifies them. He sets them apart to himself. So this is old covenant language that deals with the Old Covenant sacrificial system and, and the, all the, the, the religion that surrounded the tabernacle that the Lord gave to Israel. 
including the Sabbaths. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Meaning, he's he's to be separated from the house of Israel. Now, the new covenant analog for that would be you practice church discipline upon that person. You cut them off from your people. And and I want to suggest to you that the New Testament never instructs that if someone does not observe the Sabbath, they are to be disciplined out of the membership of the church. You never never find something like Sabbath breaking in one of the vice lists that's listed. You, You never find instructions in the New Testament given to the church to discipline people if they haven't kept the Sabbath. In fact, there's no instruction in the New Testament that they're to, we're to somehow transition the seventh day of the week actually to the first day of the week and then do on the first day of the week what people used to do on the seventh day of the week. You just don't find instruction like that in the New Testament. We'll talk about what really does fulfill the Sabbath in just a moment. We continue in verse 15. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever. And we got all that language back in verse 13. This is a sign throughout your generations. And then he continues. uh, It is a sign forever in verse 17 between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And, And I think what's being communicated is that in the same way that God built the world as his cosmic temple and then rested in it, so now Israel is receiving instructions for the small-scale version of the world, the cosmic temple. The tabernacle is a small-scale temple-like structure that is meant to symbolically depict God's creation. And so also they rest in God's cosmic temple. And and then as as, as they move forward... uh, you, you know in Judges, there are these references to the judges uh, freeing Israel from those who oppressed them and giving rest to the land. So as they enjoy the land, they enjoy God's rest. And that brings me to take you to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, where we read about the fulfillment of the Sabbath for Christians. So if you, would, if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, I've been hoping to get to this passage since we started in Exodus 25 through 31, and now we're finally here. And I'm, I'm going to start reading, we actually had this as our New Testament reading last week because I was hoping to get to this, and then we didn't have time for it. I want to start reading in verse 16, but before I do that, let me just draw your attention to the quotation of Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. And in the last words of that quotation in verse 11, the Lord says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, Psalm 95 is looking back on that occasion in Numbers 13 and 14 when Israel sent the spies into the land and the spies came back with a bad report. And and the Lord swore in his wrath that that generation would not enter the land, but rather they would die in the wilderness. And note how the place 
is called the rest, right? Because this generation, the wilderness generation, is not going to enter into the land of promise. They're going to die in the wilderness. And that is symbolically communicated here as they shall not enter my rest, meaning they're not going into my land, which is going to be like a, a new Eden, like a, new, like a, a bigger version of the, the tabernacle with the camp around it where God will rest with his people. The wilderness generation is not entering into that rest. And then picking it up in 316, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So the author of Hebrews is just saying, who, who was it that died in the wilderness? Well, it was the people that Moses brought out of Egypt. Verse 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? The 40 years in which that generation died off in the wilderness. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? And again, entering his rest means entering into the land of promise. But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So, so that wilderness generation did not believe that God would give them the victory over the, the giants in the land. And because of that unbelief, they died in the wilderness. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Now, what is the author of Hebrews talking about? Well, he's going to develop his meaning, but what he's saying is, for Christians... There is still a promise of entering into the land of promise, the fulfillment of the land of promise. And, and he's, he's talking about the new heavens and new earth. As that's the rest. The new heavens and new earth is the, the future rest for, for one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Verse 2, for good news came to us. He's talking about the gospel. The author of Hebrews is talking to his audience, and he's saying, we've heard the gospel just as to them. He's, it's interesting. He's saying that wilderness generation, they heard a version of the gospel. Now, they didn't hear that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, but they had things like Genesis 3.15, and they had things like the, the, uh, the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole, and they had the promises of the king from the line of Judah who would conquer. So they had types and shadows and promises that were proclaimed to them that anticipated the victory of God over sin and death. Promises that pointed forward to the new heavens and new earth and the fulfillment of all our longings in what God would bring about. Good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard, they heard the gospel, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What he's saying is, they didn't believe. They heard the promises. They didn't believe the promises. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. Now, here's where this concept, maybe you've heard this phrase, already, not yet. This concept is so helpful when reading the New Testament. Because the author of Hebrews is saying, in a sense, we've already entered into that rest. And if you're a believer here this morning, I think you know what, what he's talking about. You've already experienced this, this sense that all your needs are met in Christ. And if everything in the world could go wrong in your life, but ultimately, you'd be okay. Because you know, you're confident, 
that when you stand before the throne of God, he's going to say, you are in Christ. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and so we who have believed have entered into that rest. And yet, and yet, verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. It's, it's, in other words, we're not yet resurrected. We're not yet enjoying the new heavens and new earth. So we're already in the rest, but not yet in the rest. So continuing in verse 3 here, we who have believed into that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's picking up that quotation back in 311 of Psalm 95. And then he, he, he starts talking about creation in, in, the, in the rest of verse 3 of chapter 4. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's try, drawing a parallel between God's work of creation followed by rest and then God's work of redemption at the Exodus, followed by Israel's rest in the land of promise. And then there's going to be God's work of redemption in Christ, followed by our rest, that we, we who have believed enter into that rest, and yet we're anticipating the future rest of the new heavens and new earth. Verse 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. So creation, rest, redemption, rest. And then verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news. Back up in uh, verse 2, good news came to us just as to them. Wilderness generation, they formerly received the good news. Failed to enter. They failed to go into the land of promise because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the day, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So he's picking up on that language of Psalm 95, and he's picking up on the way that the Exodus happened in like 1446 BC, and then David comes along around 1000 BC, and David says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And so David is saying to his generation, you can enter into the rest if you won't harden your heart, if you'll receive it in faith. Verse 8, for if Joshua, who came after Moses, before David, right? Joshua comes right after Moses. If Joshua had given them rest, and it's interesting, if you go back to Joshua chapter 11, verse 23, the author of Joshua says that Joshua gave the land rest, and they, they, they conquered the land. But it's not the ultimate rest. Again, it's kind of that already not yet thing going on. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And I think he's talking about David talking in Psalm 95. Verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, I, all this has been to say, when the author of Hebrews says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, I think what he's saying is, we're anticipating the new heavens and new earth. I don't think he's saying something like this. You should do on the first day of the week, which we call Sunday, what Israel used to do on the seventh day of the week, which we call Saturday. I don't think that's what he has in view at all. I think he's saying there remains a Sabbath rest, meaning an experience of the completion of God's work followed by the enjoyment of God's good presence and, and the, the full experience of all of God's blessings. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest. Verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. 
Verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It's already done, right? We've already, we've given up trying to save ourselves. If you're here and you are not a Christian, this is what you need to be aware of about Christians. We are not trying to save ourselves. And we are not trying to justify ourselves. It's one of the most glorious realities of the Christian life that we don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to earn God's approval, and we don't have to earn our standing before God. Whoever has entered God's rest, we who have believed entered that rest, verse 3, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from, it's finished, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, the work is done. And so, if you're here and you're a Christian, and you're thinking, I need to perform, In order to earn God's favor, you need to revise your thinking. You need to rest from your works as God did from his. You don't don't earn God's blessing and God's mercy and God's favor by reading your Bible every day. You don't earn your your justification by staying away from, from some sin that has plagued you in the past. You don't earn God's favor by staying on top of the Bible memorization that that we think it's good for you to do. No, we do not justify ourselves by any of those means. You don't earn God's favor by being skillful and wise and shrewd in your calling. If you're in Christ, you have God's favor. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access into his grace in which we stand. You're in his grace if you're in Christ. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, am I contradicting myself? Or is the author of Hebrews contradicting himself? No! How do you strive to enter that rest? It's the fight of faith. You're striving to enter that rest as you are taking every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. As you are trying to do what Isaiah 26 talks about when it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's a fight. It's a fight to trust in the Lord and and to, to maintain the perfect peace that the Lord keeps his people in as we trust in him. How do we do that? Well, I would encourage you to read the Bible every day. I would encourage you to meditate on Scripture that you've memorized. I would encourage you to come here to hear the Word taught. I would encourage you to do all these things. Not to justify yourself, not to earn or achieve a rest, but as an expression of your faith and as an an attempt to maintain the faith against all the other influences that come into your life. And as we do this, again, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, We who have believed enter that rest. You know, Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, that's not resurrection from the dead, and it's not inhabiting the new heavens and new earth, but it is eternal life. Eternal life is going to be in a resurrection body in a new heaven and new earth, and Jesus said you can have it now as you know God and Christ. That's the same thing that the author of Hebrews is talking about. And I think it is the way that believers fulfill the Sabbath. We rest in Christ. 
Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Wisdom and rest. As, as, as you think about someone like Coke Stevenson, he could rest. He, he, he did appeal. He pursued the case against Lyndon B. Johnson for stealing the election. And Johnson found a corrupt judge who was willing to close the case and make it so that Johnson became the senator from Texas in 1947. But I, I think as you contemplate the lives of Coke Stevenson and Lyndon B. Johnson, Lyndon B. Johnson, I think it's safe to say, he never had the kind of rest that Coke Stevenson enjoyed. Wisdom and rest go together. Virtue is its own reward. We, we want to pursue wisdom. We want to pursue working skillfully by faith in Christ as faith works through love in a way that will enable us to say, I've done my best and now I'm going to rest in the Lord. And I would encourage you to, to look around and, and you'll find in this congregation, this is, this is one of the great things about Kenwood Baptist Church, you will find examples here at Kenwood of people who work skillfully so that you, you can think something like this. I know that I don't have to worry about who comes in the back door because Neil's back there and Neil's on it. I know that, that I'm not going to have to worry about the baptistry being filled on a Sunday morning when we're having a baptism because Matt D'Amico and Chris Davis and others are on it. I know that there are all kinds of details that I'm not going to have to worry about because I trust the person who is overseeing those details. That's the kind of rest that we enjoy as Christians because Christ is on it. He's the one who makes our rest in all these things possible. He is the one who will never, in any way, ever let us down. And he has become for us our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. And as we trust in him, Hebrews 4.3, we who have believed enter that rest. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if there are people here this morning and, and their guilt has plagued them and their sins bother them, Lord, I pray that they would be convinced that the Lord Jesus is enough. And I pray that they would find themselves crying out to him and trusting in him and hoping completely in him and believing that they can lay down their lives for others they can sacrifice their desires and their interests and their, their agendas for the sake of others because of what Christ has done for them. Lord, I pray that you'd save people through this message. I pray that people would be transformed into the image of Christ through this message. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to believe James 1.5 that you will give generously, give wisdom generously to all who ask you. And I pray that you'd help us to believe Hebrews 4.3, that we who have believed enter into in an anticipatory way that will be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth the rest that you promise your people in your dwelling place. Lord, help us to commune with you, to be satisfied in you, Make it so that our, our hearts have rest because we rest in you. We ask this in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen.